Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. Uh, you know, I always say I'm super excited to talk to my guests because I generally only have people on the show that I'm excited to talk to. Uh, joining me today is someone I'm meeting for the first time, but have been a fan of for years. W. Kamau Bell, stand-up comedian, host and executive producer of the Emmy, let's get that in, award-winning CNN docuseries United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell. You have a 2018 comedy stand-up special, which is available on Netflix. But we're here to talk about you being a documentarian and doing this, I have to say, it was amazing, amazing documentary on Bill Cosby. And if people haven't seen it, they need to watch it right now. It's amazing. Um, what made you want to make this film? You know, I think I ask myself that question all the time, even now that it's out, like, why did I do this? Uh, you know, I think it was a conversation that I was having in my head with other people, people in my family, other comedians. You know, I was born in the early 70s, so I was born into an America that Bill Cosby was already a part of. As He was already in every kid's show I was watching, it felt like. Uh, he was on every commercial, it felt like, even in the 70s. And, you know, and he was also at movies my mom would go see. So there was just a part of me that was like Bill Cosby was everywhere. And also, once the Cosby show hits, I felt like I was a member of the Huxtable family. So I became a stand-up comic in large part because of Bill Cosby himself. So my whole sort of existence in showbiz has been informed by Bill Cosby. And then to find out about all these women who had accused him of sexual assault and rape, and then to come to grips with the fact that this, there's got to be truth here. There's too many women. And to have lots of incredible women in my life, including my mom, uh, Janet, and my wife, Melissa, who were very good to go. These women aren't coming forward. This is not a good time to come. It's not, it's not, it doesn't benefit you to come forward and say that you were sexually assaulted or raped, especially by a powerful person like Bill Cosby. There is truth here. And then I just sort of wrestled with it by myself. And then when Bill Cosby went to prison, I sat in an office with some producers from Boardwalk. And we were just talking about, like, how would you talk about Bill Cosby? How would you sort of go, there's good things that have had impact in the world. And there's all this awful stuff that has had impact in the world. And they allowed me to sort of go down this journey. And I, I appreciated that while I was also, uh, you know, <laughs> nervous about it at every step, even today. Hence the title, We Need to Talk About Cosby. You know, in the first episode, um, you take a very deep dive into Cosby's rides to fame and how culturally significant he was and, and how many barriers he, he broke. As a Black American, why was he so important? You know, I think that uh, it, I think it was when we when you first see that black and white footage of Bill Cosby on television and he's, he's on the on one of the Jack Parr shows and you can see that he's like not even fully Bill Cosby yet. He's sort of a young comedian trying to find his way. And you think about what America was going through in the early 60s of like this is the era where if you turn on the news at night, black people are getting beat up by the cops or black people are protesting. Martin Luther King Jr. is considered like a scary radical. And so to have this black man come on TV, you know, Dick Gregory, as we talk about in the doc, yeah. really opened the door and kicked the door down. And Dick Gregory was on TV, as Godfrey says, the comedian Godfrey says, telling white people to their face what he thought about them. <laughs> yeah. But Cosby sort of comes through the door after Dick Gregory kicks it down. And it's very sort of affable and likable, but also fully, like he's not trying to be, he's not trying to put himself down. He's very, like he's a, a big man and he's good looking. And he sort of immediately comes off like the cool dude you want to hang out with who happens to be black. And America at that point, 
was sort of struggling with how do we deal with black people? And they were like, and a lot of white Americans were like, wait, I like that black guy. And right. there's something about Cosby that I think we can connect to what he was doing off stage that is just very charismatic and easily easy. He's easy to watch. No, so the word that comes to mind and in, in, in not in an insulting way whatsoever. Um, it, it, at the time, I think people found him palatable. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And I, and we talk about the fact that, Cosby clearly made some decisions to figure out how to be more palatable. We talk about how when he first started, he was quoted in the New York Times as saying he was like he was a young Dick Gregory, which, you know, indicated he was talking about race at that point. But by the time he gets to TV, he's not doing that anymore. I think he made choices and all comedians make these choices like, you know, do I want to be dirty? Do I want to be clean? Do I want to talk about my family? Do I want to observe the world? So that was clearly a choice he made to sort of like if I want to get on TV and stay on TV, and build a career that I'm going to figure out how to talk in ways that are that are not alienating to the white to white America. You know, and and my mother came in the generation after the Dick Gregory and Lenny Bruce and who really led the way in figuring out how to talk about difficult topics in a very approachable way. And I think that was some of the the genius of Cosby. Yes. Yes. Uh, you brought it up, so I I didn't know if I was going to say this. Your mom's documentary is, is like by far my favorite comedian documentary of all oh, time. Thank I just, just want to be like I I watched that in Seattle. I was on the road, and afterwards I like took a walk for like oh, two miles because <laughs> I was just like, oh my god, state of comedy is so hard. <laughs> like I literally had to like think about my career, and my choices. So you're like, what did I'm, I get myself into? Yeah, I'm so glad it caused tremendous anxiety. It, well, it, was, it helped process the fact that like, okay, I'm not alone. Even this yeah. person who's one of the great is having this anxiety so i just since you brought that up i have to say that but yeah there is a that era of comedy and it really you know like you said lenny bruce mort Saul, like bob newhart kicks off sort of like a more personal style of comedy a more sort of like we're writing our own jokes we're not we're not trading jokes or buying jokes and we're talking we're trying to talk we're trying to put out who we are not just make the audience laugh and that's that the modern era of stand-up comedy and cosby comes in on that wave and again you could he couldn't have done that in the same way if not for dick gregory before him yeah there's always someone that has to sort of take walk to the end of the diving board and jump before everybody knows how to that the water is is okay um it, it you said you were you know introduced him by your parents and what's so interesting is i grew up in the in the years of um you know the cosby show and and one of the things you talk about in that which i don't think a lot of people know is he single-handedly saved NBC. Yes, yes. Which is crazy to think now with like the streamers and the cable and all this, that there was literally the power that this man had with the with that show. It, it, it's, it's almost incomprehensible. It is, and I think that it's interesting because it's true. He did, he single-handedly saved NBC and everybody, you can look that up, it's true. And at the same time, nobody expected him to. His show did not come out with that kind of like, I mean, we found all this great archival. We ran out of time. We couldn't use it where it was just another show coming that season. It was like Punky Brewster, Jason Bateman's got a new show and Bill Cosby's back. Like it was not seen as like, this is the show that will save us. It was just, oh, we should give that. We should give that guy Cosby another shot at a TV show. He had several other TV shows before then. And 
the you know the ratings it got the highest ratings were 65 million <laughs> 65 million people which sounds it sounds comical like you know but that that's how big that show got it at certain points well there, we live we all grew up in a world of destination viewing yeah and where it was like there was three networks and you maybe had a pbs station and some other weird station that was on your tv channel 56 or something but there weren't a lot of choices and so at eight o'clock on thursday or seven o'clock if you were in the midwest it was just like why wouldn't you be watching cosby that was the hottest thing on tv well it's interesting in the in the doc you you really do sort of examine his career like a forensic anthropologist and looking at everything back through the lens of what we know now, what was the most surprising thing? I know what the most surprising thing was for me that I already knew just because of the world that I live in. But what was the most surprising thing for you when you started to look back? I, You know, the thing that really sort of kicked this off for me is the thing that I was like, somebody's got to tell this story. And I didn't think it was going to be me or somebody's got to figure out how to connect all these dots was when after the uh, many of the women started coming forward, and I think it was in 2015, after Hannibal's joke, after Barbara Bowman's op-ed, there was an article, I think it was in Deadline, about a documentary about the history of Black stunt performers and how Bill Cosby had single-handedly changed the industry for them when he refused to let a white performer do a stunt on the set of I Spy, like his first year of the show. They had a, a white stunt performer who was getting painted black, as they did, not brown, black, and Bill Cosby was like, nope, you have to get a black man to do my stunts. And and black stunt performers say that's the moment things change for us. And you go, OK, whether or not Bill Cosby is funny to you as a comedian is whatever. Not everybody likes every comedian. The, the these these assaults are horrible. But this thing is about history. Like this is about history changing for the better. And Bill Cosby did it and he did it quietly in a way that he didn't go run for headlines for it. So it means, oh, he did an empirically good thing. But what does that mean? But also, if we if we don't talk about it, because Noni Robinson had interviewed him for two hours and then felt like she had to cut the footage from the, her documentary because of all the all the assaults and rape allegations, and I was like, if her doc never comes out, which I kept looking for it, we've lost the story. Noni now since says the doc is going to come out. I think this I think our project has helped her give her some mm -hmm. some wins. So please, people, be on the lookout for that because Noni's great. But it just felt at the time like we might lose history if we don't have an honest, open discussion about Bill Cosby. Yeah, I mean, I, what I find found so important that you talked about is it, it, what came out later was going on in the 80s. And, and in the 60s, it was almost an abuse of power in a strange way. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> you probably know more about showbiz than I do. Yeah. Uh, so I want to be clear about that. I'm not telling you how this is, but for the, no. for the people listening, the idea being that like powerful people in showbiz get access to an array of things that people who are not powerful couldn't get. Now, not all of that is criminal, as you know. Yeah. Some of it is just like I said, hot coffee, and it better yeah. be scalding hot. And it, even if it's been sitting on my desk for ten minutes, it still better be scalding hot, even though physics says that can't be true. You know, like right. so. There's just and but then it becomes about what you do when the coffee's not scalding hot. Are you abusive to people? Are you throwing the coffee at people? And I think a lot of people in showbiz who are powerful end up taking out their power on people who do not have the power that they do. And I think Bill Cosby is a part of that industry. And it was always very clear to me that a part of that structure it was always clear to me in the doc, we would be like, it's not just Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby is the most compelling conversation for me, but we tried to make it clear. This is about an industry where if you are powerful, you get away with more. And 
more is defined lots of different ways. It's not always criminal, but it can be abusive. It's pretty amazing, though, that none of this came out until now, you know, in the in recent memory, when, like you said, it's been going on since the 60s. Since the 60s. That's the earliest allegations come from shortly around the time of I Spy. So I th- that's, a, to be fair, that's another thing I did not know. I think for a lot of people, like a lot of people who, even if you believe the survivors, you sort of think it all maybe happened during the Cosby show when he mm-hmm. got super powerful. But it's an indicator of how much, how rape culture affects America that, and, and you know, again, this is clear that when, if we're talking about women specifically, when women are raped, they very quickly learn how to blame themselves and shame themselves, even if the person is not as famous as Bill Cosby, because that's what America teaches us to do. And then it teaches those of us who are not uh, women to go like, well, what were you doing there that early? Why did you go there? Why'd you go to his house by yourself? Why were you, and and do all these things that aren't about like, we need to support you and, he- and help you find healing and justice. How hard was it? You, you interview a bunch of the, uh, I hate saying victims, I'd rather say survivors. They say survivors too, yeah. Um, how hard was it listening to their stories? I mean, some of those conversations went like over two hours. So like we didn't start there. And a lot of them, it was sort of nice. They were actually excited to talk to me because they liked United Shades of America, which was sort of like we would have, we would open on conversations about that. So we would sort of, I, it was really important to me. And I think we, you see that in the first episode that we get, that I get them to talk about their lives and careers separate from this so that you mm-hmm. can sort of see them as as full people, not just people in their moments with Cosby. Uh, so by the time we got to those stories, it wasn't easy. It was exhausting on my part, but I always remembered like, I'm on the privileged side of this. I get to sort of like sit here and listen to this and it was very educational, but yes, there would be after those interviews were over two hour interview talk. And especially it's also hard because a lot of it was on zoom by the end. Right. And you just, so the zoom of it is also exhausting. And I would just sort of be wiped out by the end. But again, remembering like I'm at the best end of this. This is just, I'm just receiving the story. So but, and they were also all very ready. The women who decided to show up were ready to tell their stories and engage. So they made they made it a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. You know, it's interesting when you do interview people on difficult topics, which I've done as well. You almost want to apologize at the end. You're very appreciative. And I would always want to say, like, thank you so much. And you want to say, I'm so sorry this happened to you. Yes. And you really do bring it home. Yeah. You know, at, you're married. You have... One child, two children? Three, I got three. three. You've been very, any of them from COVID? Apparently you've been very busy when not on the road or shooting. <laughs> yeah. Um, did, did it make you come home and want to say to your wife, oh my God, like, I, I, I'm so happy you've never had to live through anything like this? I mean, it, it, it made me grateful that I'm married to a person who understands what the work is and also educated me on these topics before I ever worked on this. So like I could come to her and be like, whoo. And she's like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, And so like, it was, it made it easier. I think it'd be harder to be with partnered up with somebody who like, didn't get it. And Melissa totally gets it. My wife's name is Melissa. I I was going to say, but how does she spell it? That's the important thing. Uh, The classic way. M-E-L-I-S-S-A. Thank you, because I hate when people take the liberty of changing it. She did not do that. I will let her know that that you guys are a team on that. I want to pivot for a second, and then I want to talk a little bit about United Shades. The pound cake speech. Mm. That, you spent a lot of time discussing that, and I I felt like there was even more to be had. 
Sure. Explain to people what the pound cake speech was. So there's certainly there are definitely moments in this film where you're like, oh yeah, black man directed this. Because like, it was like these are there are things that I'm like, I need to talk about this because this is what affected me. See, I didn't think that at all, by the way. That never crossed my mind. Well, th- I appreciate that, but I definitely was like, you know, working with people like who hadn't, you know, white people who worked on the project who hadn't didn't know that thing or had heard a little bit about it. And I was like, I had to sort of do some, which I'm doing my career a lot, some education about, let me explain to you why we need to cover this. Because I think some people were like, well, I did that speech. No, 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 no. No, no, no. That was, that was major. It was major. Because it was like the first time that Cosby, it felt like he turned on the black community. He had been America's dad. He'd been the dad everybody in America wanted, regardless of your race. And then that thing was not about indicting America for doing a bad job with their kids. It was about indicting disenfranchised, poor black people for doing a job with their kids, and specifically black moms for... And it just felt it felt cruel. While at the same time, when you listen to clips of him doing those speeches, the, a lot of the audience is laughing and appreciating it. And so there's black people who are like, yes, we need to be clear about this stuff. And some black people are like, why is our hero uh, turning on us is one of the interview as uh, Chris Spencer says. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was just the first time I was like, this is not the Cosby that I was inspired by. And it was really confusing. And also, it felt sad. It felt like he had gotten old and cranky. Little did we know what all was going on in the rest of his life, but it felt really like, and I sort of kind of tried to forgive him because I was like, he's old and he's getting conservative. Uh, that's understandable, but it really was hard to deal with. And I wanted to be clear about the fact that when you sort of go through his career, there's these moments where you see, you know, you said the masks start to slip. Like the guy who's sort of like the Cliff Huxtable mask has completely slipped off at that point. And early in his career, he really wanted you to think that him and Cliff Huxtable were the same person. And a lot of people, I think, who knew him behind the scenes saw the pound cake speech like, that's the guy I actually know. That's the Bill Cosby who is not on stage. It it was very polarizing, not just within the black community, but within every community who knew about it. Because I didn't think, especially when I was watching it in the documentary, it was really that much of a leap from Cliff Hextable. It just seemed like an older version yes. where he was still celebrating. And I think this is one of the reasons that Cosby was such a hit, and I, I, I hate to it became um, colorless mm-hmm. because it was about values, it was about family, it was about parenting challenges. It was, again, the Cosby that originally made himself a, a, a way to be so accepted completely in, in, a, in a way that had no race attached to it except for whatever you personally want to put on it. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing for me is like, it would have played differently if he was saying, America, you're doing a bad job of raising your children. Right. That would have felt like, okay, Cliff Huxtable, who was America's dad, is now America's cranky grandpa. Right. Maybe that's fair. But the fact was, it was at the NAACP. And the ways in which he was talking about parenting, he was talking about black parenting. And that's what felt like, like it, it, felt, it felt like you're turning on us. You're not turning on America. You're turning on black, black people who need you the most, who, who have been inspired by you. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, that really caused a lot of drama. And like you said, that's really where the mask started to slip. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, he lost fans during it. But how confusing was it for you as a, as a, as a black comedian? The funny thing was, is like, I don't know. I saw Cosby perform after that. And those venues were still sold out. I think there was this real sort of like two different conversations that were being had at that point. There were black people who were like, I don't know why he's doing this. But then he would play the venue in your town. And you sort of knew that when at the comedy venue, he was going to be Cliff Huxtable. So you could like, 
I went to one of those shows and it was like, sort of like, is he going to be angry? No, he's still, he's just, he's doing all the same stuff. So you can sort of go, man, I hate that he's doing that, but I'm still enjoying this over here. And he was still showing up on like late night talk shows being the goofy Cliff Huxtable version of himself. But when he showed up at black venues, he would be the cause as me and my friends started to dub it like this. He'd be angry Bill Cosby. And so that, like on that, uh, like on that clip of the Oprah interview that you showed. Yes. And so, and I think the idea being that like, this is why the Hannibal joke was so powerful. We were sort of just holding these things in separate places. And then in 2004, same year, the podcast speaks, the first accusation, the Andrea Constant case starts to play out where she accuses him of rape. And you start, but we're sort of holding them in separate parts of our brains. And it's not until the Hannibal joke that many of us put them all together and go, yeah, this is, we, why, this, we gotta, this is not right. It's interesting that the way you bring that up, because it's a perfect place for me to, to start to ask about, uh, United States, people holding different things in different parts of their brain. Mm -hmm. You put yourself in some pretty terrifying situations. I don't know about you, but just as a woman, let alone a white Jewish woman, I would have run for the fucking hills when you were at the Klan rally. I mean, I think you might have read them the riot act and then maybe you would have left. <laughs> oh, no, I think I, 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 I think I would have been like. I'm out. Yeah, nice, no, to I, meet, I nice to meet you all. Please don't call me. Um, I'm just going to go yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, I think in many ways that that KKK episode of United Shades, first of all, it was the pilot. And so it was like, I got to do something that CNN goes, oh. So I think that was a part of it, too. Well, you did. Yeah. Well, yes, it, it worked. And I think, I don't know, and I keep being asked questions like this. There is just something about me that is drawn to charged conversations. And also sort of wants to challenge myself to see if I can get through something. Even if all I'm doing, I'm like, even I say this in the KKK episode of United Shades, you hear me go, whose idea was this? Or like, <laughs> or like, or like, this was a bad idea. Like I'm saying it as I'm going through it, like, why would I do this? And yet here I am. And I was the one who pitched that idea. And I think it's connected to, there's just something about me that is like, I want to have good conversations. I really am a person who's like, if you sit next to me on a plane, as much as I like to talk a lot, I don't really like small talk. I don't really like, like, so where are you headed? Chicago, like it says on my ticket. You know, like, I don't yeah, really want to. We're on the same flight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is it your home? Why do you need to know that? Like, you know, so I think the idea being that, like, I only want to have conversations when they're worth a damn. And when they're, and it doesn't mean they have to be all about racism or, but when you're like sort of going, oh, this is a good conversation we're engaged in. So I think that you know, whether I'm learning something or whether I'm laughing and having a good time, I just think that I'm, I want to have good conversations. And I think that we're in America, we're sort of leading the league in bad conversations right now. So I want to figure out a way to like, part of my career is like modeling good conversation. Which makes you a very good dinner party guest. Just want to just want to throw that in. I'm a great dinner party guest. I, I would I would put my dinner party guest skills up against anybody. There you go. You in a later season and, and this kept coming back to me through the uh, through the last presidential election. You did a really fascinating episode on the HBCU mm, mm -hmm. um, that personally blew me away. Oh, wow. Because I was so, A, I always knew they were very good schools, and it's time we all start to accept that they're basically the equivalent of the Ivy League. Yes, yes. They, but, they have to do much harder work to get what they do harder than the Ivy League because they don't have the huge endowments, too. Right, but I, I wanted to, turn to my son and his friends, granted they were still younger, and say, like, this is how you're supposed to dress to go to school. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do not wear pajamas just because it's 8 o'clock in the morning it, for your it, class. It, exactly. Yes. You you can't hide that you do not have on a collared shirt. Yes. 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 Um, 
I also found that it they got a lot of um, attention during because of uh, Kamala Harris. Yes. And the network that builds. Mm-hmm. I, I I learned so much from that episode. How how what was the reaction? Did you get big reaction from that? Or was it just because it was very profound to me coming from an Ivy League school and being in that network? I mean, the funny, the, the, the thing I most got was every HBCU going, you went to the wrong one. You should have come to us. <laughs> like, I think that- just like the Ivies. There's a whole thing like we don't like you because you don't like us. There's just a, we- they, they don't get a lot of attention. And so they sort of all and it was like when I look back at that episode, it was like we really should have just we went to three we should have yeah. just gone to one like because like, we went to three they're like you went to the wrong three where if we just went to one we could have said so it I, it definitely i think that a lot of episodes united shades and this is that people who have no knowledge about it are like oh my god and people who have a lot of knowledge about it are about like you did this wrong and i just sort of have to accept that the fact <laughs> that like that every episode i'm hearing from people and this is true right now with cosby who are like thank you this is amazing and people are like i can't believe you made something this bad and you just sort of go all right, this good conversations happening, but yeah. So I, 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 the thing that that episode really got for me is like I walked out of there going, I really wish I'd gone to an HBCU. I just didn't understand them, and I think for a lot of Black people, we don't we understand them as these historical institutions. We don't understand how they're relevant today, and it became very clear to me as I was there, like, oh, these are relevant today, and I was like, I'm committed to. If college still exists when my kids are ready for college, who knows? <laughs> it might not be, might, we might not be doing that anymore, but I'm committed to saying you're going to do visits at Spelman. You're at least going to go and check yeah. it out. I mean, my, my whole, you know, like we always used to say at Penn, the only hard thing about Harvard is getting in. <laughs> you know, it's the same. It's all the same. Oh, that's so you went to Penn? Yeah. I dropped out of Penn. You did? Yeah, I was there for a year and a half. Where did you live? Uh, uh, what's the big? Uh, the quad? Quad. Freshman year. Freshman year. Freshman, and then the second year, I was like, I had like a work study job, and I still lived in the quad. So yeah, I lived in the quad too. There you go. There you go. Uh, we have a lot to discuss offline. Um, <laughs> but you brought up your kids. I'm the child, obviously, of a stand-up. And mm-hmm. I was always very well-versed in the history of stand-up comedy and who were the greats. You're a parent. Are you doing that with your kids? I mean, the funny thing is, is that because of like, so like my oldest daughter has been coming to me do stand-up comedy shows since she was like a baby. Cause it was just like, we didn't have any childcare. So it's like, and she would come out on stage. And so uh, she was with me. Now my youngest kid doesn't, I don't, has no idea of me as a standup because when she was born, my special came out and I was like, I gotta stay home. I didn't go on tour. And then I was like, well, I'll definitely be going on tour in 2020 when the election happens. You'll see me everywhere around the country in 2020. <laughs> Guess what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, my oldest kids understand that I, they understand me as a comedian. I don't think they understand me as a stand-up comedian anymore because of because of the current events in the world, because of the way things have changed. Uh, but there is definitely like so i would say like do they know the history of stand-up comedy no but they know the history of they they are i'm schooling them on the history of black people in television (laughs) like the history of like fair enough yeah Mm -hmm. and they and like for and it's like because they're mixed race so because their mom is white and that's how that works i'm also like determined to make sure that i check the boxes of like you have to hear this song because you're because i don't want you to walk into a room with a bunch of black people and not know to sing the stevie wonder happy birthday song after they sing the regular happy birthday song um, one last question. What do you think is the current state of comedy? <laughs> I mean, 
like my friend Ali Wong just dropped a Netflix special yesterday out of the blue. And I get sort of like, I feel like, well, there's kind of too many specials. Nobody cares anymore. And then I saw all of her people like, oh my God, Ali Wong has a new special out. And I was like, it's, there is still a stand-up comedy is still doing fine. I think the thing that is harder to do is just be regular. Yeah. Like, I, I think that's the thing. Like Ali Wong is like, I, I'm so proud of her because I've noticed that she started. She knows exactly what she's here to do and she knows how to keep it, keep it relevant. So it doesn't look like she's repeating herself. And so for me, it's like, you can't just release a special. It's like, here's my special from a venue that I recorded. Here it is. Go see it. So I think the idea being that, like, basically right now, all stand-up comics are being invited to just do a better job. Because the way it works right now is that everybody's funnier in 2022 than they were in 1962 because we're all on social media all day making jokes. So stand-up comics have to be, like, figure out a way to, like, dig deeper and be better at what we do. So, you know, when I see, you see specials that break through and you're like, yeah, it's still possible. It is just, there's so many more specials now. Like you think about Bill, when Bill Cosby started in two years, he went from like novice comedian to on TV, Mm -hmm. but, but also some of that was like, there was probably a hundred stand-up comics in the country. (laughs) Like there was, there wasn't, yeah, (laughs) not saying not whatever, but now it's like, you really have to do something. And I think the thing that the best advice I ever got was like from a friend of mine named Kevin Kataoka, who's a stand-up comic and comedy writer you can't rely on just doing stand-up. You have to figure out something else to sort of show that you're like a fully functioning comedic human being. You are absolutely brilliant. This has been such a joy for me. Again, the documentary, we need to talk about Cosby. Run, don't walk to see it. Thank you so much. And then go watch a piece of work after you do that. So like You're that's what I would say. No, because that that No, then come and listen to this podcast. Then come and listen. Well, they're already listening to the podcast. <laughs> like, listen to it again. Okay, listen to it again. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 